Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Good morning, everybody. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you made the effort, as, as Andrew said. Let me encourage those of you who have been parking off-site and getting those smoothies to continue. The smoothies ended today, but I'd like for you to continue. Uh, that's our choke point for us, so let me encourage you to do that. And I want to encourage you also uh, to consider volunteering at Fall Fest. You know, safe ways to, um, safe is the wrong word, um, easy ways to invite uh, people of your, in your community, in your world, into your church family. Uh, without asking them to come to church is not an easy thing to do. Um, but you can bring them to something like this, and it's, it's a powerful way to just go, this is part of my world. This is something we do as a church. So let me encourage you to do that. As we continue this morning, I want you to imagine with me the time that you felt most homesick in your life. It might have been when you were a child. It might have been uh, last week when you were gone for multiple weeks at a time and you're finally back. It might be that you've taken a job and you have to be out and you're gone. Maybe you've traveled abroad and maybe you've served in the military and you've had to be gone a long time. Some of our international families um, have been here and unable to go back home. Uh, one of them uh, was with us uh, briefly last night before the game and they have been uh, trying to seek political asylum for 19 years, unable to go home, and try, finally that's happened. Uh, but man, imagine being gone for that long and being away from all that you know and, and the food that you love and the people that you love. And then um, I want you to imagine coming home. I want you to imagine coming home. And it's a feeling that I'm trying to get you to, to conjure up in your mind or in your memory. Um, this past week, I read this. Five Americans were freed from Iranian detention this week and returned to U.S. soil on Tuesday. The return of the five Americans was a significant diplomatic breakthrough after years of complicated indirect negotiations between the U.S. and Iran who do not have a formal diplomatic uh, ties. Now, I'm bringing this up not to step into a geopolitical discussion, because I'm sure there's a lot there that I don't know. Uh, but what I am trying to imagine is what would it be like having been detained somewhere that's not home? The, the word detained kind of implies not comfortable, um, and then to be brought back home. It says, um, the freed Americans stepped off the plane onto U.S. soil for the first time in more than five years, five years, some of them had not seen family in eight years, and it depicts the, uh, a dad running and, and screaming, we're home, uh, seeing his daughters and his wife in this great reunion. And I think about that, and if you can find that feeling in your mind, I'm trying to get you to remember what it's like to finally be home. And, you, and for those of you who travel regularly, you know what it's like to close the door and go, I'm home. You put down the garage door and you go, I'm home. I'm going to take off my shoes. I'm going to get in my jammy jams. I'm going to enjoy my space. I'm going to enjoy the smells I create, not somebody else. I'm going to enjoy the foods I like. And then there's a day that Mary and I like to celebrate. It comes around rather regularly in our house. It's called Clean Sheet Day. 
It's when you slide in and the sheets are clean and you're like, oh, some of you folks at, uh, you know, in college, you hadn't had that since you left home. <laughs> anyway, let me tell you, it's a pretty awesome day. So, you know, break the routine, wash your sheets, and you'll be amazed at how good it feels to climb into a clean bed. And you just kind of exhale and you go, I'm finally home. What a great feeling. What a great feeling. What a great reality. Today we're going to see in Genesis 2, the God of the universe creating humanity's first home and putting humanity in that home. And it's before Genesis chapter 3 where things fall apart. So this is perfect. This is pristine. And what it demonstrates, what chapter 3 will demonstrate is the freedom of man and, and woman to choose. What Genesis chapter 2 demonstrates is the powerful heart of God because we see his original steps, his, his first steps for humanity. And I'm going to invite you to consider that the God of Genesis chapter 2 is the same God throughout the Bible and he longs, he desperately longs to be in relationship with you. And he has provide it and will continue to provide everything that you need to live the life he's called you to live. That is a generous, gracious, abounding and abundant God. That's what you're going to see. And he's going to, it's going to put it in the context of a freedom to step into that abundance or to step away from it. And too often, Christians and non-Christians alike step away from all that God has provided. And in doing so, we miss out. We miss out on what he desires most for us, what he's planned deeply for us, what he's provided significantly for us. We miss out on that. And so as we pray, I want to pray for those of you who are longing for a homecoming, longing to be home, to be at peace with God to be able to come in and relax before the creator of the universe, which is oxymoronic, I'm aware. But that's the picture that he paints. That's the invitation that he will offer. And so I just want to pray for us as we begin, that God might allow your heart to long for the home that he's created for you and that you'll move toward him, that you'll step toward him. Would you pray with me toward that? Uh, Father God, we, we give you thanks today for all that you've done and do on behalf of humanity. Lord, we come confessing that we choose way too often to live our own way, walking away from you and all you lovingly and carefully have planned and provided for us. Lord, we've done this through disobedience, selfishness, and so we have to confess. We have to repent. We have to turn away from self and turn back to you. We are grateful that you are a God who forgives. You are a God who receives. You are a God who restores. You are a God who welcomes the wayward. Would you welcome us today? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 2. Here's one of the first questions. If you're new to the book of Genesis, first book of the Bible, if you read chapter one, you read chapter two, it feels like a redo. Didn't we just talk about this? 
and people with critical minds and an inquisitive mind said, you know what, Genesis chapter 2 is just a repeat of a different creation story of Genesis chapter 1 because there's so much different about them. These are just two of the same story from two different sources. That is an opinion you can draw. I would say, let's draw a different opinion. See, if you force the, the, the text to kind of follow sequentially, then it doesn't do that. Many times people will come to the Bible and impose on it what it wants, what we want, rather than allow it to transform us. We seek to transform it. And God's given it, given it to us to transform us. And so the, the easiest way to understand Genesis chapter 2 is it's a complementary description of creation on one level. And on another level, it's a zoom in. Two-year-olds know how to do this now to, to make pictures bigger, whether it's on an iPad or a phone or something like that. Everybody knows how to do that. That's all God is doing here is zooming in, slowing it down and looking in great detail about what's going on. And in doing so, God is giving us, the reader, an opportunity to understand a different aspect of himself, and that is his personal um, nature, his loving, kind, covenant-keeping nature. So in chapter 1, verse 1, You'll remember it says, in the beginning, it was uh, the heavens and the earth, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the sequence. In chapter 2, verse 4, there's a slight difference, as you'll see here. And this is the account of the heavens and the earth. That's the same. When they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. The words are reversed. You go, well, they made a mistake. No, it's a different focus, Chapter 1 talks about something really important, that God is not equal to his creation. He's above it. He's transcendent. Chapter 2 says, yeah, but just because he's above it and transcendent doesn't mean he's disconnected from it. He's also deeply, intimately involved. Transcendence and imminence are the theological concepts. So chapter 2 is focusing in on humanity. Chapter 1 was about the heavens first and then the earth. Chapter 2 is about the earth first and then the heavens. We just get a, a little indicator there. And then the word account. And this is the account of the heavens and the earth. That's what the writer uses to differentiate the various aspects of the book of Genesis. We've imposed numbered chapters and numbered verses to help us navigate around a complicated and long book. The writers used words, literary structure. And so that word is, um, comes right after the prologue. This is the account of the heavens and the earth. Then we're going to see it again in just a few uh, verses. In chapter 5, verse 1, it says, and this is the account of Adam and his descendants. And then the next handlebar, if you will, is in chapter 6, where this is the account of Noah and his family. And it keeps going all the way to Terah, and out of Terah comes Abraham, and out of Abraham comes Israel, and this is the sacred book of Israel. So it, it traces us all the way down to that, and we pick that up in this verse. But there's something more important here, and that's the name of God. The name of God changes from chapter 1, which is just God, to the Lord God in chapter 2. This is his covenant-keeping name. This is what our chapel kids are talking about with their memory verse, that God is a covenant-keeping God. In other words, if God says something, he's going to do it. If he promises it, he's going to fulfill it. That's really important. 
if we're going to worship and follow God, to understand him that way. I don't know, I don't know if, how you view God and his promises that he's kept or not kept in your life, but he is a covenant-keeping God. And so what he's saying is really important, and he's going to do it. And then in verse 5 and 6, we get the context for the rest of this chapter. Here's what it says. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, first reason. And second reason is there was no one to work the ground, which is what we're going to see coming with the creation of man. But springs came up from the earth to water the whole surface of the ground. No rain yet until after the fall, the, the water's coming out of the ground, and this is the setting. And then verse 7, we see, we zoom in, and it says this, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living being. This verse matches chapter 1, verse 27, which says, So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God he created them, male and female he created them. But here's what I need you to see. God formed. That word is the same word used of a potter. It's, it, it's, his hands are wet, his hands are dirty, his hands are on it. It's, he, it's, it's not mass-produced. He is forming it. It's intimate, it's personal. It's important that he would take this time. God could have spoken man into existence. He did that with the earth. He did that with the stars. But he didn't do that with humanity. He formed man beautifully and delicately. When we find salvation in Jesus Christ, we're called new creations. New creations. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. She's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And then in Ephesians 2.10, we see not only are we a new creation, but we are a masterpiece with a purpose. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things. He has planned for us. This is, a, this is what God is, was about in Genesis 2. It's what he's about today. Today, creating us as masterpieces. I don't know how you view yourself, your, your struggles, your disabilities, your looks, but God has formed you. And it's, it's, it's very different. Adam, the Hebrew word for Adam is Adam. And uh, Adam, and uh, the Hebrew word for earth is Adama. So Adam is literally from the earth. It is his cradle. It is his place of employment. It is his graveyard. He, he's formed from it. Now, he's different, though. Animals breathe, but man, the man was formed and God breathed into him the life. And this, again, is intimate. Imagine the kiss. It's as intimate as a kiss. I think of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, which is, <laughs> let's say it's intimate. But we're not, God's not resuscitating us. He's giving life. I need you to see this abundant, this personal, this glorious, intimate God creating, forming, and breathing life into humanity. It's really, uh, it's amazing. Jesus would say to his disciples before he left them in John 20, 22, it says this, and he breathed on them and said, 
receive the Holy Spirit. Before he left, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. What's he doing there in John 20? He's saying, I want to give you and leave with you the Holy Spirit, which will allow you to be and do what I've called you to be and do. It's the exact same thing in Genesis chapter 2. I'm going to breathe life into you so that you can be and do what I need you to do. And it's, he doesn't have a soul. He is a soul. He is a living being. He doesn't have a living being. He is a living being. So you have this beautifully, perfectly, deliberately, intimately formed body. The body in the, in the Bible is a critical uh, area of study because Jesus came in human form, not an idea. He came in a body. He died in a body. He rose from the dead in a body, and he ascended into heaven in a body, carrying with him the scars of the crucifixion. So it's important. Here's our first point. God breathes life into man. God breathes life into man. The next thing we see is the home that he's going to create for him. And it's really, literally a paradise. Verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. The Lord made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food in the middle of the garden. And uh, in the middle of the garden, there were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now here's, here's paradise. He's created it. Here's the first thing I need you to see. Not only did he form man, not only did he breathe life into him, but then he puts him which is another Hebrew word for rest, I want you to be here. This is where I'm going to put you to, I'm going to have you rest right here in this place. And then it's full of trees that are beautiful to the eyes and great food. And in the middle there is two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, Eden, it's an old word. It's, scholars don't know if it means delightful or just a lot of water could mean both. So it's delightfully wet and fertile ground. It's something we're lacking right now. The tree of life, that one tends to make sense, right? You eat this and you live. The other tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, is a place that many people will stop and pause. And they'll begin to wonder, what is the fruit of this? What is the meaning of this? What is it? What, what's going on here? Well, it's placed there simply with a prohibition. And it would be wise for us, like many prohibitions, to just take it at face value. You don't eat of this tree. Prohibition. To do otherwise, to investigate it, would be to fall into the same temptation that Eve did. Right? Let's see what's in here. Let's check it out. Rather than just go, you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to go any further. One writer said it this way, we should be more concerned about the opportunity it presents, which is a negative opportunity, rather than the qualities it possesses. It's like a door whose name announces only what lies behind it. Danger. Don't go here. Don't open it. And then we're told about the boundaries of this garden. Some of these boundaries, these waterways, you're going to go, oh yeah, I know where that is. But the other ones, scholars don't know where it is. But here's what I need you to listen for as I describe the boundaries. One, it has boundaries. Two, it's just awesome. It's abundant. It's overflowing. Verse 10, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there, it was separated into four 
headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold of that land is good. And I'm thinking, what kind of gold is bad? But that's a different... It's good. must be easy to grab, right? Uh, aromatic resin, onyx is also there. Great things are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, and it runs along the east side of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. We recognize Titus and Euphrates. We don't know exactly where this is. It's obviously in the Persian Gulf area. More importantly than exactly where it is, Consider what it is. It's abundant. It has a water source. There are trees. There's food. There's everything that man would need to live a life. And it's all there. In chapter 3, we're going to see how paradise changes because of man's choice to disobey God. But in chapters 21 and 22, the very end of the Bible, of the book of Revelation, we see these same this same picture painted, meaning God is going to restore and put back everything that was destroyed and messed up by sin in chapter 3. So this beautiful, beautiful place is laid out there. So here's what I need you to see, point two. God uh, plants a garden and provides a home. That's what he does. And then he gives man purpose. If you've ever lived a season are years without purpose. You know how disorienting it can be, how depressing it can be. And so here it is, verse 15 through 17. Then the Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Maybe you've heard the story of the guy who, who retired and he was struggling with his purpose because he's retired now. And so he's walking his dog every day and in the neighborhood he lives in, there's an empty lot and it's all overgrown. It's full of trash and it's just a complete eyesore. So he goes to the city planners and he says, hey, do you mind if I put a community, a garden in that lot? And they're like, yeah, knock yourself out. So he brings his pup, puts him on the leash and it starts cleaning and cleaning, he finds old tires and junk and takes it all out and then scrapes it and puts good topsoil on it and tills it and plants his tomatoes and his cucumbers and his okra and his snap beans and his black beans and his, and his you know, the whole shooting match is in there. And the guy walks by and goes, man, God has given you a beautiful garden. To which the man said, yeah, you should have seen it when God was in charge of it. Ah, right? Thank you, Nancy. I appreciate the laughter. It helps me along the way. Yeah. Work, there, remember verse, verse 4 said there was no one to work it. That's part of the reason for the creation. Work is not a curse. Work is not a curse. Not a curse. And it's not a problem yet. In the same word, Hebrew word for work, it's also used for worship or service. So what God is really doing, it's not giving him a job to do, but a way to serve and worship him by tending to this, to this beautiful place, work in paradise, service to God. I wonder about you, what would change if you saw your work as worship? If you saw your gifts and abilities as something to steward rather than simply 
a job to do. The health, the skills you have, you bring them to work. And that the work is not just a job you manage to get, have, secure, hold on to, but it's actually a provision from God. And you're going to work and serve him. Wonder what would change if your attitude about work changed. And I know what some of you have already concluded. Hey, Kevin, <laughs> I don't live in Eden, nor do I work there. The place I work is full of jerks and mean people and poison ivy. And it's a hard place to be. But what would change if you changed? What would change if your mindset changed and said, God, you have, you have provided? Again, I think about our international families that are here. What did you do when you were in your country? We would say fully accomplished, multi-degreed, working professional jobs. And what are you doing now? Trimming trees, working retail. There's nothing wrong with either of those, but it's such a different place, right, from where they were. You're deeply challenged. What if you saw that? Here's how Paul would say it in Colossians. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. It's working for the Lord, not the man, Kevin's words. Not for human masters. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord, you already have an inheritance, a reward from the Lord. You don't need to work for one. You don't need to, to worry about savings and retirement and all the things that we worry about. If we're going to follow the Lord, you can be wise about it, sure, but you don't have to live and die on the, on the up and down the red and green of the stock market. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you're serving. I would say a whole lot would change. But what about this prohibition? This prohibition in verses 16 and 17. Let's go back to that for a minute. You're free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. This is the first binding and defining agreement between God and man. He gives him choice and the freedom to choose. Freedom is necessary in order to make a choice. God gives us a choice, and he graciously explains the consequences. He could just say, don't eat of this tree. And every child would ask, why? And the great parental you know, advice I gave my children as they came up was, because I said so. God didn't do that. Don't miss this. Hey, I don't, I don't want you to eat of this tree because when you eat of it, you'll surely die. As you read the New Testament and the Old Testament and you see death, you can always use this word as a synonym to maybe help you understand it. The synonym is separation. When we die physically, we're separated from our body. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were separated from the garden first, from God himself. That's what sin does. And then when they died physically, they're separated from God. So they did surely die. They were immediately asked to leave the garden. But their physical death would come in, in time. And then, you know, I think about this idea of prohibitions. We live in a day and age where people want, they define freedom to, to be this. There are no consequences. I get to do what I get to do and you can't tell me otherwise. But it, that's not the nature of freedom. 
It's one type of freedom, sure, but no one lives there. Because the nature of freedom is I get to choose this consequence over this consequence. So biblically, the idea of freedom is not you can do whatever you want without consequences. It's I can choose this over this. That's biblical freedom. But we live in a day and age where so many people go, you, you, can't, you can't do that. And they will say, many people that don't believe that there is a God, that religion is just constraining, it's, it's binding, it doesn't, it, it's forcing me to not live the autonomous self that I'm trying to live because i got to be free. And you know what? You would think it's new. It's not new. It's not a new concept. Not at all. Here's how one put, person put it, saying that God and religion actually compromised our autonomy. He said, A man does not regard himself as independent unless he's his own master, and he is only his own master when he owes his existence to himself. A man who lives in... in um, in the favor of another, considers himself a dependent being. But if I live entirely by another's favor, when I, when I owe him not only my continuance in my life, but also the creation of it, when that's the case, he, he's in charge. A man is the highest being for man, not someone else. And these words are so attractive. So attractive. Maybe you hear them and go, that kind of makes sense. The philosophy behind them led to a political ideology that has led to government systems that is responsible not to, for the liberation of people, but the condemnation and the killing of people. The person that wrote that is Karl Marx. It's, a, it's diametrically opposed to the idea of freedom and so I have to ask you, because it pushes up against this, do you see God's prohibitions as limiting or liberating? Do you see them as constraining and controlling or freeing you? Do you see his boundaries as making you less than or able to live freely inside the boundary? This is a struggle that so many Christians fight. My wife and I were driving in from North Louisiana yesterday, coming in on Plank Road, and it was around 3 o'clock. We live in Riverbend, so we're going to hit game traffic. So I got on Waze, the, the app that tells you how to go and avoid traffic. Boy, she was so off. I turned on Choctaw, and she went, no, I, I, I wouldn't do that. I'd turn around if I were you. And I kept going down Choctaw. I said, I know, I've done this before. There's a little cut through right there. It's, it's a parking lot, but it works. I'd turn around if I were you. I'd turn around if I were you. I oh, know, I got this. Got all the way down to Government Street. I'd turn around if I were you. I'm like, would you shut up? I know how to get home. I get to the railroad tracks. I'd turn around if I were you. I get on River Road. I, I'm just minutes from the house. I'd turn around if I were you. And then I round the corner, and what do I see? Tail lights. I know what's best. Don't limit me or my driving. I'm free. 
Yep, you sure are, buddy. Free to wait in line now. Thanks for listening. I say that because we actually embrace limitations all the, all the time. Oh, don't go that way. I mean, I have listened to the directions of ways as if my life depended on it. The flight did. Getting there on time did. Oh, yeah, don't go that way. Don't do this. Don't do that. But when it comes to God, a don't do is often just like, who are you? And what do you know? I know. I know what's best for you. I created you. I formed you. I breathed life in you. I placed you here. Well, how do you view it? So in our outline, God provided a man with purpose and prohibitions. And prohibitions. And then for the first time in verse 18, God says something's not good because he's been declaring it's good all along and he sees it before man does. The Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The Lord saw what so many people, so many women see today. Oh, that man needs some help <laughs> right there. He's all alone and doesn't have a clue what's going on. He doesn't even know he's in trouble. Doesn't even know it. So I want to talk about these two words, suitable helper for him, a helper suitable for him. The first one, helper. Somehow that's become diminished. It's a negative. To be a helper is a negative, but this same word in the same way is used of God of helping Israel when they could not do what he needed them to do. What did he do? He came and helped them. He helped them. He helped them. This is not a demeaning word. This is an elevated word. This, say, this says something about her and something about him. He lacks, she brings. It's powerful. One who provides what is lacking in man. One who can do what man can't do alone. That's what God's going to provide. A suitable, a helper suitable for him. And so what about suitable? It means according to the opposite. It's a beautiful combination she fills in where he is lacking. He fills in where she is lacking. This corresponds. He made them male and female, right? Together, they complete the image of, the, uh, of God. Now, before we get any further, I want to say this. We're talking about the very foundations of culture, civilization, family, and procreation, which is what God said. I need you to fill the earth. So in the New Testament, you will see a plenty around the ministry of Jesus, men and women that chose to stay single in service to the kingdom. Jesus, single in service to his Lord. Paul, single. And we could go and spend a great deal of time on that. If you've been reading in the Chapel Bible reading plan, you're in 1 Corinthians where Paul talks some about this. But I just want you to go. This is what, what we're laying down here is just foundational foundational. So if everybody was the same, you know, why would you need the other one would be unnecessary. God observes it. Now he wants Adam to know what he already knew. Verse 19. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the uh, birds of the sky. And he brought them gently again, brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever name he called each of the creatures, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the sky, and and um, all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So Adam is exercising authority. He's naming all the animals that God is bringing to him. I was talking to a guy last week about the days of creation. He goes, I don't believe in a 24-hour day of creation. Adam can't name all the animals in a day. I said, hmm, never heard that. He goes, me neither, but I hold on to it pretty tightly. I don't know. Maybe it was just the animals in the garden. 
But now it's become apparent to, to Adam, hey, everybody seems to have a corresponding something. I don't. And then look what God does. So God, the Lord God caused the man, God's still initiating all of this activity, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Oh, it's just so beautiful. Pastor Matthew Henry, uh, English pastor, said this, woman is not out of, uh, taken from a man's head to be on top of him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, near his heart to be loved by him. The Lord brought, brings her to him. The first wedding is what is signified here. She, he brings her to the man. You know, there's, a, there's some, our family likes to watch uh, women's basketball. And we've recorded the national championship and we watch it ridiculous number of times. But a few of those players are, are, are rappers. And they can, at the drop of a hat, sew together some lines that rhyme and make sense of the context they're in. It's really quite cool to watch. This is what Adam's about to do. Yeah, I'm calling Adam a rapper. Anyway, he breaks out into poetry. I don't know if it's song, so I don't, I don't know, but he does. That's why it's written kind of differently in your, in your Bible. This is what he said. Now, now, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Wow. She's amazing. She, and, and woman will always be part of man, even the name, because she's from him, and he will always be a part of her. Finally, he is saying, there's someone for me. What a beautiful gift. What a beautiful compliment. As Paul would say, man is the head of woman. And if that is so, one writer said, then she is the crown on that head. I love that. It's just this beautiful picture of marriage. It's not defined by Adam. It's defined by God. He defined it. He designed it. He brings it together. And then in verse 24 and 25, he gives reason. It's for this reason a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one flesh, and Adam and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. The little commentary here, it's directed. He's talking about what the man is to do. He's to leave father and mother, which is different than the cultures around them. The cultures around them, the, the family unit was star. And here he's saying, no, you need to leave. She is now primary. That's what it's saying. And you need to be united, or the old word, cleave. The two of you are going to bond in covenant relationship like God would have with Israel. This is something that's designed to stick together and not come apart. And the two shall become one, not three, one. While many in the Old Testament would practice polygamy, when Jesus was pressed on questions about marriage, he would say this, that's not the way it was in the beginning. And he goes all the way back to creation. It's one man, one woman together for life. And of course, we, we're going to spend some time in issues uh, related to this passage in 127 next week. But here it is. It's all together. And, and it, 
It's powerful. Marriage was born in the loving heart of God for the blessing and benefit of mankind, as it says in the old uh, Book of Common Prayer. I like to say it this way. Marriage is God's gift to humanity, but it's best enjoyed like all of his gifts, as he's designed it and as he's fulfilled it. And there's no shame. It's an ideal state. Everything is there. So not only does God uniquely form and fashion and breathe life into man, then kindly and gently put him in the garden and bring to him all the animals, raising gently the need for a companion that's suitable. He then forms her, brings her to him, presents her to him. Everything is set. Everything is perfect. God creates complete companionship. That's our fourth point. God could have spoken man and woman into existence, but that's not what he did. He provided everything they need, a place to leave, live, food to eat, a job, and a partner for support. And in return, he says this, what are you going to choose? Are you going to choose everything I've provided? Are you going to choose me? Are you going to choose something else? And he gives us the same choice. Are you going to choose everything I've provided? You may be saying, well, Kevin, what has he provided? He's provided Jesus. He's provided Jesus as our Savior, the Holy Spirit, as our sanctifier to live in us. In John chapter 14, Jesus is trying to prepare the men and women that had been following him for years for his departure. And he says this, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would, have I, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place, I will come back and take you to be with me that you may also be where I am, home. Home. I'm going to get it ready. And when you get there, I'm going to be waiting. And you know the way. And Thomas is sitting there going, I don't have a clue how to get there. And Jesus said, Thomas, I'm the way. I'm the truth. Right? I'm the life. You, you know, no one can get to the Father except through me. I don't know where you are in your journey. But what I need you to take away from Genesis chapter 2 is God is creator. And when he creates, it's over and above what we need. It's done with gentleness and purpose. And it's given freedom and freely. Adam and Eve are set up to knock the ball out of the park. They're going to miss But we don't have to miss today. I thought about playing this song to end our time together, but I don't know enough about the rapper Diddy to know if it's appropriate. My kids will tell me, Dad, you can't say that. And I'm like, why not? It's funny. And it doesn't work anymore. But a rapper named Diddy wrote a song and when I hear songs, I, uh, I redeem them. 
I don't know what they might be about, but I know what I make them about. Does that make sense? I make them about my love for my wife. I make them about my love for Jesus. And the song has this lyric, I'm coming home. I'm coming home. Tell the world I'm coming home. And it's put to just this beautiful melody. And I find myself singing it and hearing it in my head. Maybe that's what you need to do today, is come home. I think of the prodigal stumbles home with no shoes on his feet, no jacket on his back, smelling of swine manure, and he's met by God. Come on home. Ask, and you'll receive. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be opened. Whoever asks, receives. Whoever seeks, finds. Whoever knocks, the door will be opened. Revelation chapter 3, Jesus declares to the church there, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'm going to come in and eat with him. And he would, I'm going to come in and make a home with him. That's what God wants us to do. Let me close. Father God, I pray that our hearts that long for home would find it in you. Those here today that need to turn to you, I pray that you would. Cry out to him. Confess your sinful selfish ways that ignore his gentle nudging that have learned to turn off his word maybe just turn to him and just apologize and receive his forgiveness lord we need you and we're so grateful that you didn't just create you created in abundance you created with grace you created with purpose you created with companionship you've given us all we need I pray that we would find it in Jesus and live fully for you. In his name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.